From the Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week, we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's October 7th, 2015. I'm Michael Lodemark, one of the show's producers. We're in the midst of the 53rd New York Film Festival, and on today's episode, we're featuring one of our most provocative and inspiring events. This past Sunday, a panel of esteemed producers, critics, and filmmakers engaged in a discussion about Hollywood's ongoing problem with diversity, inclusivity, and equality. The event, titled New Hollywood, was a part of our free NYFF Live series, sponsored by HBO. But before that, we'll share a few other highlights from the festival thus far. The opening night film was Robert Zemeckis's The Walk, which stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Philippe Petit, the charismatic wirewalker who famously strung his wire between the tops of the Twin Towers in 1974. The morning of the world premiere, Zemeckis joined the cast for a press conference. Here, they talked about visiting the 9-11 memorial and their memories of the World Trade Center. I actually went in the summer of 2001 uh, to, to the top of the World Trade Center towers, uh, and I had just uh, moved to New York uh, at that point, because I, I went to Columbia starting in the fall of 2000. And uh, so it was my first summer living in New York after my freshman year of school. And um, it was touristy, but I wanted to go do it. And I remember it pretty uh, distinctly. It felt more like being uh, in the sky than it did feel like being in a tall building. I had, um, I had uh, <laughs> passed by it, but something that I did, something that, well, I'm from New York, so I passed by it. It's just a piece of the, the landscape. It's something that's, when you think of New York, that's what it was for me. But um, I went to the Freedom Tower this trip, went inside, and also I stood, I'm assuming the pools are approximately where the buildings stood, is that true? Yeah. I stood at the edge of one of the pools and looked to see how far away yeah. that walk would have been, and it was just incredible. It is so far, and it seems so insane. Uh, but I stood there a couple days ago and just uh, just tried to feel the distance between it. It's pretty incredible. I actually did that walk at the memorial. I, I stood it, because those two pools are the footprint of the old towers. I yeah. stood at the north corner of the south tower and walked from, the, you know, from there to the south corner of the north tower uh, just to see what it was like. It's a long walk. It's so long. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Great question. So, <laughs> just real quick, I grew up on 20th between 9th and 10th, and just like Ben, that the, those towers were part of the fabric of my childhood, and it's the fabric of New York City. And for all of us, whether we were there or we were just looking at them from afar, it was, it was part of who we are as a city, and um, I couldn't bring myself to go to the memorial until after we did this film. And this year I went, and I just can't tell you how proud I am to be a part of this film and what I believe this film means to New York and uh, to the memory of those two towers. This year's centerpiece selection was Danny Boyle's Steve Jobs, which stars Michael Fassbender as the influential and controversial founder of Apple. At the press conference for the film, Boyle joined Michael Fassbender, Kate Winslet, Seth Rogen, Michael Stuhlberg, Aaron Sorkin, and Walter Isaacson to talk about the film. In this clip, the cast talked about their approach to portraying their real-life counterparts. Which was the majority of the time, all of the actors, no matter how big or small their roles, were in that space together. And what that did was there was no pecking order. You know, okay, Michael did have more to do than all of us in terms of actual lines to learn. But 
everybody, we were very much given these parts to play. They, they were ours, they became ours. And Danny gave us permission to play them the way that we wanted to. And to make all the mistakes that we needed to make and get really out of the way before we walked onto the set. Because when we walked onto the set, we had to be that well-oiled machine. We had to be ready to go. We had to have Sorkinese in our back pockets. And, um, <laughs> um, and, and, and to really be, you know, be, be ahead of ourselves. I mean, Michael and I would try things in rehearsal and, and, and we would know straight away that it wasn't really going to work, but we'd soldier on for the 12 or 13 pages and then look at each other and go, yeah, that was absolute shit. We'll never do that on set. And so it was very necessary um, to have that process, really. Um, uh, in, in particular for creating the energy that was required to keep up with the pace and what Aaron had written and, and really had handed to us because the rhythm and the cadence, which Michael always talks about so so eloquently, and I'm going to hand this over to you in a second. <laughs> um, um, the, the, the rhythm is absolutely built in. It's written in. There's a, when there's a period mark, it's there. When there's a pause, you pause and not for too long, you know. Um, so, yeah, over to you, Fasby. Oh. <laughs> I mean, I think it was exciting. <laughs> Thanks, Michael. That's great. You, you didn't always. There, um, uh, there was <laughs> my, my favorite moment at the very first table read, um, uh, you know, each of them actually at at least one point in the movie has kind of a long list of, uh, of things to say. Uh, and uh, Michael, um, uh, in, in one of his speeches where he's saying, uh, that the 300 megahertz processor is twice the speed of a 200 Intel, uh, uh, this and that. Just like he's saying it, and he just glanced up at me, he just looked at that, and on a break, I, I went over to Jeff, and I said, listen, Michael's a really big Irish guy, and I think he's going to beat me up. And <laughs> Jeff, who'd been doing this for three years already with the newsroom, just stared at me and said, I'm a really big Irish guy, and I'm going to beat you up. <laughs> Good morning. Your movie was amazing. Thank you so much. Um, my question is for Michael Fassbender. Um, hi. With a contemporary figure like Steve Jobs, you may have had an opinion of him, like already kind of like a perception of him going into your script. And I was wondering how it changed when you read it. Uh, I didn't really know much about him. I just, I mean, obviously I knew who he was, but uh, I'm not um, very interested in technology. I use it pretty poorly um, so everything was new to me uh, to be honest I suppose the thing that really stuck with me was meeting people that knew him uh, in his life through work that we got the opportunity to meet uh, John Scully, Joanna Hoffman uh, Steve Wozniak um, and Andy Hertzfeld and the one thing that stuck with me was how much of an impression that he meant, uh, made on these people. Um, uh, obviously, when he was alive, but you know, since he passed away, you could see that he was still very much present in their lives. And uh, even if you know the relationships were difficult, there was a sadness and there was a, a love there for him that I felt was pretty clear. And that was something that stuck with me, you know, even though that there's, you know, all the stories about how he could be a hard taskmaster and even with, you know, obviously the relationship with John Scully didn't end well, but I could really feel that there was, um, 
there was a, there was a love there for the man. In addition to the 26 films in the main slate, the festival also features several sidebars spotlighting exciting new works in documentary, experimental film, immersive media, and restored classics. The revivals section included a celebration of 25 years of the Film Foundation, Martin Scorsese's film preservation initiative. Following a screening of a new 35mm restoration of Ernst Lubitsch's 1943 Technicolor classic, Heaven Can Wait, Scorsese joined NYFF Director of Programming Kent Jones for a lively discussion about the history of the company, the state of film preservation, and much more. Let's go now to a short excerpt from their conversation. And so I put together a program that I took around the world when we opened up Raging Bull around the world. We went on a world tour of the film. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, in, in that, we started with the trailers in, in color, one of them being Invaders from Mars, William Cameron Menzies' film, very low budget, um, super cine color film. And they were all laughing in the audience. And I said, you're laughing. I said, this is Close Encounters. This inspired Close Encounters. Those who know about the film I'm talking about, you know, it's the great William Cameron Menzies. There's a new book coming out about him finally, and you should see it and read it. I mean, read it. It's, it's uh, Menzies is so important in production design, and this film is one of the films at a certain age certain people saw, and it's your cinema now, you know, and this is where it came from. So if you say, well, Invaded from Mars, silly title, uh, who wants to keep it? Let it rot. Hmm. It changed the industry. <laughs> Funny, you know? Then I went into films by Boaz, films that Boaz did of um, North American, uh, North Native American uh, uh, tribal uh, ritual dances, which were fading, which were done in 1915, 1920. And then I showed um, a clip of uh, a rocket going up to um, um, the moon, I think, uh, NASA footage and it just was a glorious magenta. And you see the rocket going, you hear it, and I'm talking about it, and it, 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 we made it to the moon. The film is gone. I'm just saying, it's just really interesting. What, what kind of thinking is this? Um, and it was really a level of consciousness that we try to change. Um, and it was hard because he's been correct, and we had to talk, and they said, you know, this is not our, this is not our thing. There is a stable stock, it costs more, it costs a penny more a foot. And the studios at that time didn't want to pay that. Because, you know, it's not like now. The, the, if you're going to send, what, 10,000 prints out or something, 4,000 prints, it's a lot of money. And they say, well, they're, not, they're, they're backing one film, they're not backing a film, I don't know. But in any event, backing meaning supporting a picture. Um, but it, no one ever thought of it to pay that extra penny a foot uh, for the more stable stock. But that changed a lot. Everything changed within, I think, uh, by 83, 84. They made that stock available at no extra cost, and that stock was called LPP at the time, and then it got better. It got much better, and it continues to, in a sense, of course, now the point is that film itself is no longer gonna be around uh, much longer, but um, yet we all know that um, the only stable element for preservation of film, even when you go through it digitally, and you, you do your whole digital 4K, 6K, whatever it is, the only stable thing, ultimately, you make separation masters and everything, onto black and white, or onto um, 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 celluloid, which supposedly lasts, supposedly lasts about 100 years, 70 to 100 years. A round of applause for celluloid starting. Thank you. Oh, it's from a young man. It's, how old are you? Uh, almost 12. I turned 12 yesterday. 
Turned 12 yesterday. Okay. Happy birthday. Good. That's great. No, and uh, you know, George Lucas keeps saying when George was with me the other day, we were talking, and he says, yeah, it'll last 10 years. Oh, come on, George, I'm telling you, that the celluloid. <laughs> he said, if you're doing a DI, you're making a digital film. I said, I know, but still. <laughs> so we're using film and, and digital at times. And, uh, but then there's the whole issue of, uh, and we should put this up. Film Foundation was formed in 1990, and 600, over 600 films have been restored. Yeah, 640 yeah. or 650. Yeah. Uh, the thing about the Film Foundation came out of by the late 80s. I tried to find films and, and restore the negatives by making new prints, and I would get permission from the studios to make new prints. Um, and the one that was the hardest was Pursued. Um, and once we got that, the, uh, they couldn't make a print off the original negative. Raoul Walsh's cycle as Freudian Western. And so um, Bob uh, Rosen at UCLA at the time, he told me, why don't you take whatever power you guys have at this point and put it together and bring it to the studios and explain to them and see if you can create a little group. And so with Mike Ovitz at CAA, we put together the Film Foundation, Sidney Pollack joined up and Stephen, of course, and uh, um, Lucas and Coppola and... Um, oh, and Albany came in, Robert Redford, all Clint Eastwood. Yeah, Clint Eastwood. So it was it really? Uh, and what I did was, while I was editing Goodfellas, I went through these books that um, they called the MGM story and the Warner Brothers story, and they had every film made that the studio made. And I started to try to put them in order of not importance, but a kind of necessity. Whether it's a film I liked that I thought was that I thought was overlooked. And or whether it's a film that, let's say, is uh, Warner Brothers' first uh, two-strip Technicolor film, you know, and saying that's important. I mean, I like the film, but that's so I try to put it in A, B, and C categories. And we came up with these books myself, and, uh, and I would I would then get meetings with um, the, the heads of the studios and go in and bring these books. They would let me in because I've done um, uh, Goodfellas. They, they probably would, I think it was one of those things where you know he, yeah he did Goodfellas and they, people like it but. Just, he has this thing. Just let him do his thing. Yeah. Let him come in. Don't, just, and don't make any fast moves, you know what I'm saying? That kind of stuff. So, but we did it. And that, I remember it was um, Mickey Schulhoff at uh, uh, Sony. Because George Lucas uh, went to Marita, at the head of Sony at the time, Mr. Marita. And he said, Mr. Marita said, Michael Schulhoff is the man to see him. So we got a meeting with him, and uh, when I gave him the book, um, he said, he looked through, he said, you did this? And I think what was very sweet about it, because he realized, yeah, they, they love these things. They love it. They love it. He said, you actually went through all that? And it was every one of them. And then it was Bob Daly at, uh, and uh, Terry Semmel, and Bob turning around and saying, Warner Brothers, and saying, the problem is 20 years from now, what's going to happen? We start doing the same thing. You know, and that was the key to it. How is this going? Once you start with your photochemical restorations, digital was not around that, that clear at the time, but um, once you start that way, uh, what's, how is it going to change and how it's going to be, how, how, how is it going to be uh, um, cared for and preserved? Um, having said that uh, real fast, it was uh, uh, the whole key of the film foundation itself was to unite the archives with the studios because it turns out now that it was, I used to say it wasn't, the studio was not only in production distribution and distribution of a film, but it was production distribution and conservation. They had, uh, I said, and in a way, this art belongs to everyone, I said, um, and you're the custodians. That's the idea. You, you have a great responsibility. Um, 
uh, for, for you know preserving this work. One of the most topical events in this year's NYFF Live series was this past Sunday's New Hollywood panel, which included actress-turned-director Rose McGowan, whose recent criticisms of sexism in the industry made national headlines, and producer Effie Brown, whose appearance on HBO's Project Greenlight has sparked a vigorous discussion about diversity in the filmmaking process. The lively and provocative talk used a recent Sunday Times piece by A.O. Scott and Manola Dargis called A Hollywood Facelift, as the jumping-off point for a discussion about inclusion both in front of and behind the camera. So let's go now to moderator Eugene Hernandez as he introduces the rest of the members of the panel. All the way down at the far end is, he's a writer, both of journalism and, and, he, and he's written some really cool books. Um, has anybody read Pictures at a Revolution? Yes. Um, and Grantland, his work in Grantland and, and for other uh, publications, as well as the book Five Came Back. Please welcome Mark Harris. Uh, Effie Brown has produced many, many films. Um, Real Women Have Curves among them. Uh, Dear White People, she, was, she had a film here at New Directors, I think it was last year, maybe it was two, <clears throat> two years ago, but um, certainly recently. And she's currently appearing on HBO's project Greenlight. Effie Brown. Uh, next to Effie is Susan Lewis, who's worked at MTV Films, and she's an executive at AK Worldwide. Welcome, Susan Lewis. Uh, Minette Louie in the center is a producer. Uh, she's produced numerous films, including Mutual Appreciation, uh, recently Land Ho, and she's also um, launched a new initiative, which we'll talk about certainly this evening, Game Changer Films. Minette Louie, welcome. And Ira, your resume is too long for me to read because you've produced so many movies, repped so many films, um, started companies, uh, and not only that, but um, Ira's also at Columbia University. So please welcome Ira Deutschman. Uh, Rose McGowan is an actress and a director. We were thrilled to have her here. Um, I guess it was over the summer now. Time has flown <clears throat> with a screening and conversation about her film, Dawn. Uh, she's also an actress, been in many, many films, including Death Proof, Grindhouse, numerous others. Welcome, Rose McGowan. And again, with Lydia, there's so many films I could mention. I'm just going to mention a couple. And um, The Lunchbox, Cutie and the Boxer, Darjeeling Limited, Talented Mr. Ripley. Please welcome producer Lydia Dean Pilcher. Okay. Um, it was interesting to me on Friday night that Michael Moore, in talking about his new film, Where to Invade Next, um, near the end of the conversation, um, asked a question of kind of everybody in the room, and that is, uh, he asked, what stories are we missing? Uh, why can't we make more films by women? How are we going to look? We're going to look really bad in the future with a population that is majority female, and yet so few films are directed by women. Um, it was a, a comment that um, I've been thinking about a lot this weekend, but I want to take a step back for a moment to sort of set the stage for this conversation. And that goes back to three weeks ago when um, 
my colleague Brian Brooks and I, Brian, who introduced the panel, uh, we read the piece in the New York Times um, on the cover of the Arts and Leisure of the Fall preview. Um, and I'm going to read um, just a couple of quotes from it because it really is what inspired this conversation. And a number of things that happened after that panel um, led to the group that we have in front of you and to um, creating this opportunity for us to have this discussion. Um, A.O. Scott in the New York Times in that Sunday cover. Uh, he's talking about uh, the success of Universal Studios, the, the studio. There's no doubt that Universal led the pack in releasing movies that people were eager to see, <clears throat> to tell their friends about, and to see again. These included Trainwreck and Straight Outta Compton, which beat expectations and also taught Hollywood and the entertainment press a lesson periodically learned and too often quickly forgotten. Women go to the movies. Black people, too. And more than that, movies that reflect the demographic reality of the world we all inhabit can have a very wide and profitable appeal. Which is only to, which is only to state the obvious fact that a lot of the ticket buyers for Compton were white, and a lot of the train wreck fans were men. And a lot of the summer's most exciting movies, Inside Out, Mad Max, um, among the blockbusters, Diary of a Teenage Girl, and Grandma among the indies have been about women. It goes without, goes without saying, although it's always worth saying again, that Hollywood remains a hotbed of sexism and retrograde gender politics, especially where the hiring of women directors is concerned, but there does seem to be something of a shift underway. Manola Dargis responded, this is very brief, the big studios deserve to be repeatedly lashed for their lack of diversity, but it's also true that change is inevitable partly because of the country's shifting demographics and that it has always begun on screen and off. On August, an August 25th report from the Directors Guild states there has been what it calls modest improvement in the number of women hired to direct for television and the internet. So it was reading some of those comments followed by, in quick succession, any other number of comments um, Effie on Project Greenlight, um, Marion Cotillard's recent comments about feminism, um, Emma Watson's comments, comments by Matt Damon, <laughs> comments by Roland Emmerich regarding Stonewall. All of this got us talking, and I'm sorry to go on, but I wanted to sort of set the tone. All of this got us talking at the Film Society about this moment we're in. And I wanted to bring together, we wanted to bring together this panel to help us understand the moment we're in because everyone on this panel is on the front lines of creating entertainment, content, and stories, telling stories for audiences. Um, so it's, it's a really interesting, I have to go to Effie first because after reading this article, um, I think it was later that night, <laughs> watching Project Greenlight. What happened? Something happened. <laughs> what? <laughs> um, I can read quotes about what happened. You all probably saw it already, so I won't do that now. We can come back to it, but, or the quotes, that is. But Effie, you tweeted very quickly thereafter that a conversation was started. You appreciate yeah. that a conversation was started. I did. You know, and I, I mean... And I did tweet 
immediately of being Tuesday, I was terrified, actually. I mean, just to have a real Please. conversation, you know? Um, after I knew, because we would see those cuts a little bit ahead of time. Did everybody I, watch Project Greenlight? Oh, sorry, Has everybody yeah. seen the clips of... All right, so Project... You saw the kid, It's riveting. <laughs> it's, it's really sort of heartbreaking. Like I can't watch them now. But in the in the uh, in the we were ch- choosing the director. Uh, there were some off the cuff uh, comments that were made about diversity and how you uh, are diverse uh, in the casting of a film, not necessarily behind the scenes, and how um, somehow and I'm you know paraphrasing uh, being diverse. Being diverse somehow uh, supersedes. Um, you neglect merit. I mean, I'm trying to say I, I, would, I totally uh, disagree with what was said, so I don't know how to. Well, let me let me nicely. let me just help you out with one yeah. thing. <laughs> Quoting Effie, I, and this, they're discussing uh, the casting of a film, and then the, how, how to hire a director for this film on Project Greenlight. Quote: I would just want to urge people, whoever the director is, the way they're going to treat the character of Harmony. She said, her being a prostitute, the only black person being a hooker who gets hit by her white pimp. And it's a comedy. Quoting Matt Damon, when we're talking about diversity, you do it in the casting of the film, not in the casting of the show. Effie's response was, whoa. (laughs) Wow, okay. Um, Yeah, and it was uh, was pretty shocking. I mean, I don't really know what the, how to go on about the conversation, but it was pretty shocking because I raised a red flag earlier seeing a previous cut of it, and I was like, yo, you guys are going to keep that in? And, uh, and then they sort of cut it further, and that was the nice cut. All right? So be duly noted on that. So, and then Tuesday happened. I didn't, I mean, to be real about it, I couldn't go head on against the biggest movie star in the world. Do you know what I mean? I want to work again. I am a producer. Well, I mean, this is the things I think all of us have to think about. You know, I'm a ballsy chick, but I'm also like, he has a number one movie and probably going to win an Oscar. You know what I mean? I'm trying to pay my mortgage so Chase doesn't take it. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, so, that's where, so that's where I'm coming. You know, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, but what I loved is that the, it, what was brilliant is that with social media, there was an immediate call and response. It was the conversation, the people that tweeted, Facebooked, got out there, that it was quickly acknowledged, oh, this is no longer okay. That what you feel, that you cut to make it seem palatable to the people, the people were still like, this is some bullshit. Hopefully, and this is being filmed, so I'm gonna stop right there. Uh, can, I, can I chime in? I think, I think that's a big reason, social media is a big reason why you know, pe- people can't get away with that kind of stuff anymore. I mean, all the Stonewall, boy- the Stonewall yeah, boycott, yeah, the Aloha whitewashing, um, you know, even the Mikado, Gilbert and Sullivan pulling that because of the, the yellow face and, and, and them canceling the show entirely. I think that social media has given people of color and women a voice and we're really loud. <laughs> we can be really loud and really just kind of change the way Hollywood thinks about, oh shit, we gotta pay attention to these people now. Yeah. Lydia, did you see this exchange? Yeah, yeah. And, and I wonder how you well, I, processed it. Well, I actually it. think it's amazing and it's great that it happened because I think that <clears throat> what he said, what he uttered, is exhibits the lack of understanding about cultural diversity in Hollywood. And it's the kind of thing that gets said all the time, all every the time. day. And we don't get to hear it. It's behind closed doors. But, uh, you know, as produce, those of us who are producers, and we, you know, we're involved in every step of the pipeline from development to financing, production, 
it goes all the way to distribution and exhibition. I mean, the, you know, it's a very, you know, it's this a conversation that's yeah. dominated by, and the thing that, the thing that really frustrates me and I realize that I think is the biggest part of the problem is, you know, is that they don't get the value of diverse voices, of diverse perspectives. So the idea that diversity is just reflected in casting, I mean, yes, that's important, but it's not, it's not the end of the beginning. You yeah. know, so I, I, I think it's an amazing thing to have happened and I think it should keep getting talked about. I know it will keep getting talked about and it should be pointed to because it, it's a disconnect. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, there's so many people that are like, yeah, yeah, he said that, yeah, so. Yeah. Right. So, you know, it's a, it's a, but it it's goes a, on, yeah. like, you know, yeah. It goes on in, a, in an extremely real way and knowing it from the inside to the out, um, I've had, because I've been perceived as not having power for so long, mm. the things that have been said to me and done to me, but also in, in another note, like regarding that like kind of situation, I've, had, I've been replaced three times and they straight up said, you know, well, we need to make our black quota. You've been replaced by a black woman, but it's because we need to make our quota. And these people have no shame. And there's no idea that something is wrong. There's literally no shame. And it's, it's I'm like, fine, cool. Go, like, whatever. Black woman. Fucking do it. <laughs> and you're right. But also, you're wrong. And you're wrong in the way you disseminate this information. You're wrong in the way you think. There's a fundamental, inherent wrongness in the way they think, in the way they function, in the way they treat the world. And what I see and how, how I perceive it to be how they treat women um, and others behind the screen is how it's treated on the screen, is how they're treated in the world. And it's a cycle, and it's a cycle. There's and very, oh, go ahead. No, I would just say there was a, um, I tend to feel there's a very dismissive quality to the way that people talk. And I, I actually get to hear a lot of the things that people say. Um, I don't and the, the questions, the remarks, you know, I, I was on a phone call once with a, a big executive who was giving us feedback on a, on a, a black woman's script and, and her, her demeanor in a meeting, her demeanor in a meeting. And the, the feedback was, well, well, the head of our studio didn't like her because she's too polite. She doesn't curse enough. She doesn't, she, it's on? Yeah, she doesn't curse enough. So next time she comes in just can you just make her like a little messier just a little and that's how they went. and that's how they but damned if you and do if damned if you don't came in like that if it she came in and she cursed and, and she she's said like not she polished behaved enough. the way they wanted her to behave then it would have been the opposite right there mm. yeah i can go like on with the number of times <laughs> people <laughs> yeah, can I mansplain yeah, diversity no, mansplain now? Mansplain exactly. So what are y'all thinking? <laughs> well, I, I, well, let me do. Let me do one thing. Let me. Let me. Sorry. Let me read a quote. Uh, Matt Damon, after numerous days, it took a while, uh, responded in Entertainment Weekly, and then you know, not just because Mark used to work in Entertainment Weekly, I'll I'll ask you to to give a journalistic con, uh, context to this. Um, quote: I believe deeply that there needs to be more diverse filmmakers making movies. I love making movies. It's what I've chosen to do with my life, and I want every young person watching Project Greenlight to believe that filmmaking is a viable form of creative expression for them, too. My comments were part of a much broader conversation about diversity in Hollywood and the fundamental nature of Project Greenlight, which did not make the show. I'm sorry that, that, that they offended some people, but at the very least, I'm happy that they started a conversation about diversity in Hollywood that is an ongoing conversation that we all should be having. 
Aren't we sick of having a conversation? Exactly. Ah. God, I'm bored of it. I mean, we got to do something. Stop talking about it. As an audience member, as an audience member, I beseech people that are making movies to just like you and you and you, like, just stop. Like enough. Like I shouldn't be on a panel about diversity. I'm a white fucking woman. God damn it. You know what I mean? What about me? And you. What's your problem? I'm gonna yell at you now. It's, it's, That's it's why like, I'm here. I'm part Indian. Yeah. But uh, true. But I don't look like it. But oh the thing God, is, is that I we're 50% you. of the population. Yeah. What the fuck? I want to use that. I'm a white woman. I should not be on a panel about that. I, I, I shouldn't. I love it. I love it. It's. It's. Uh, but I mean, thank you for asking me. <laughs> But I think, I think gonna, gender bias does deserve some focus and, oh, it's, and completely. attention. But it, oh, gender bias deserves well. huge focus and attention. Yeah. But uh, We're just can, can yeah. I talk about of this idea of Please. meritocracy that Please. Matt Damon oh. brings up? Mm-hmm. You know, I think a lot of white men toss this term around as if it's, it's an objective scientific term. Forgetting the fact that 80% of film critics are male. 80% of film critics are male. Probably 90% are white. So it's like, you know, are, what's, what's a good movie is defined by white men. And it's sort of like, you know, you have to think about meritocracy in a shift, you know, in, in a way that's much more broad than that, obviously. And, um, you know, I think that the diverse perspectives that on Project Greenlight that that team, that filmmaking team that Effie was talking about would bring a different perspective to Harmony, that has merit to it, you know, having that yeah, and not only that, just to sort of uh, shed a little bit more light to that, those, that directing team was previously picked by all of them. So all of those 13 directors had merit. And it was just interesting to me by me talking about two of them. We talked about a lot of people during that day, but me talking about the two of them, all of a sudden they became, in my perception and what I perceived in the conversation, as less than because they were somehow diverse. So that made them less than, and that's how the conversation took a turn. I will say this because I'm sure we all want to work with Matt Damon sometime in the future. Um, That I don't, you know, a rose is like, yes, girl, okay. But I was saying, I don't feel, I just have to sort of like, I don't want to be like, we're bashing the dude because I do feel that his view, in his mind, it made sense. And I do feel it was the view of quite a few people because it made it on. And I don't feel that he's a malicious person. And I don't feel they're malicious. And what's worse is they just don't think about us. Do you know what I'm saying? So like, that's why I don't want to like bash the dude because then we're going to give him real ammunition. Right. And I want to work again. Um, yeah, ju- just to add a couple of things to this uh, about Matt Damon's statement, I think that the one step in the right direction that it took was that he stopped using the word we or you and started using the word I. Right? A- at least he was speaking for himself, whereas in that room, you know, whenever I hear some- either something negative like, you know, you don't do uh, diversity in the show you do diversity in casting or even something positive like we really need to make more of a diversity effort you always have to think who's the we who's the you because if it's five white guys in a room saying we need to do something about diversity the result is not going to be the same as soon as you view diversity as a problem to be solved by the power structure of straight white men you know diversity becomes a gift that that the authorities are bestowing on you and you've sort of lost half the battle um the only other thing i wanted to bring up in relation to the quote from uh tony scott and manola that you read and i thought that was a really good piece and they they actually 
did start an interesting conversation. Um, they didn't just say it to get out of trouble. But um, <laughs> what one of them, I believe, said, you know, uh, well, changing demographics are going to make this change inevitable. And I have to disagree with that, because I was looking into this and I found a variety story that said that theater owners had recently discovered that in the 20 major urban markets in the country, as many as 40% of uh, their theater goers were African American, and that this was major news to them and would inevitably have to be reflected in the kind of movies that studios would make. And that story was from July of 1967. <laughs> the demographics have always been there. But like, you can't just, it's like saying let the marketplace decide. It's a cop-out. You know, a, a real effort and change in thinking has to be Maybe, made. I mean, maybe. I'll challenge you a little bit on that. Okay. Because John Fithian, who is the um, head of um, the National uh, North American Theater, Theater yeah. Owners Association, NATO, he, he is a feminist. And he is outraged that the film buyers and, and the exhibitors are, you know, sort of upholding this um, resistance to diversity. And he, go, he talks about it at length. And he talks about, you know, this is a different section of the pipeline. And we don't hear about that section that much. It's, it's more invisible to all of us, but it's very real. But I, um, you know, I work with a lot of women directors. And I'm um, in the room pitching, you know, female-driven content. And I'm, you know, having the casting conversations, having the writer conversations, you know, having the finance conversations. And I just, it just really, um, just really started to just sweep over me as, as, you know, things have been changing in the last, you know, let's say three or four years. Um, that there are myths that are just being perpetuated, that women don't open movies. Hello, let's look, you know, now we're seeing it with The Hunger Games, with Twilight, with, um, with Lucy, with all different kinds of movies at all different budget levels. And so, you know, I, I'm, uh, I chair the Women's Impact Network for the Producers Guild, and we represent 7,000 producers in America. And I said, you know, we see all of this, and this is an opportunity for us to take all the little studies and research and the data and pull it all together in one place and make a case. But let's, let's forget about the sexism and the, you know, and the anti-diversity efforts. Let's make the economic case. Because it was clear to me that, that while perspectives are being undervalued, that audiences are underserved. And if they're being underserved, the money's being left on the table. Right. So surely, in a business that's all about profit, we can, we can speak to the bottom line. So we, we worked this last year on putting the Women's Impact Network. We partnered with Melissa Silverstein and Women in Hollywood. And we put together what we call the Ms. Factor Toolkit, um, the power of female-driven content. It's 30 pages long. We released it two weeks ago. Mm -hmm. So you can, I've got cards that have a link for it if you want to um, see me after the show. But we, when we talk about the shifting demographics, we talk about what's happening because, you know, what, you know, if you just look at across all industries, you know, women are making less than men today, but in, you know, we're talking about in 10 years that women will be out earning men in America. Women go to the movies more. We watch more television. We're on social media more. There's a, there, we're becoming more educated. We're out earning men in degrees. I mean, it's just a fundamental shift that's happening with the change in the workplace and the way we raise families. So <clears throat> anyway, I just, I just wanted to challenge you a little bit because we're, take, we're taking this momentum as an opportunity to say, hey, 
you know, let's look at it in terms of money and debunk the myths that female-driven content isn't profitable, that women don't open movies, because they are myths. They are myths, but I feel like they've been being debunked for a long time. Like, I've I've been hearing the same, like, and I have the statistics and that, you know, women-led films out-earned by this much, and I've been hearing it for a long time, and the problem there is it's a self-policing town, and they're not policing. What are they self-policing? I mean, it's like basically, it's like this kind of white male patriarchy that has a lazy boy strapped to their ass of comfort, and they don't want to get I, off. I don't know. I mean, the, I, I don't want to monopolize, I but I'll just say so. one no, other, other thing is that there, there's another thing that's happening, which is the shift from domestic to international in our, in our revenue stream, and, and that's a very important... It's, it's, it's what's happening with, you know, the digital platforms and piracy and the crash of DVD and the growth of local film industries. I mean, whereas domestic used to be 70% of a, of a film's revenue, you know, international is 70% of your revenue. So the studios who are the longest, you know, they take the longest to turn the ship around. I mean, I think as indies, we've known this for a while. They're, they're starting to do and think about things differently. And I've, I've just wrapped a movie with Disney that Mira and I are directed, and it's an all-African movie with an all-African cast. Yes, we were greenlit with Lupita Nyong'o and David Oyelowo, but, but we you know, are telling a very, very different kind of story for a studio, and I'm very aware that it's a bit of an experiment for their brand, but they, want, they recognize that they have to make movies for international audiences. They cannot make middle American films and survive. As a producer, Ira, and as someone who has not only produced for decades, but started companies that have released, I'm thinking of Fine Line or Cinecom, companies that have released films into the marketplace, um, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of context and, and also from an academic perspective, how you look at the moment we're in in the context of some of the other moments we've been in. You know, it's funny, every time Eugene asks me a question on any subject, it always ends up with the academic perspective somewhere in there. Um, okay, well, let me, let me just say that, that um, uh, thinking back to, you know, the 40 years I've been in this business, I feel like I've seen this panel like 40 times. Yeah. And, and, and the thing is that, that, first of all, it's astounding that we still have to have the conversation. But the second part of it is that there's really... Um, you know, what sort of speaks to Matt Damon's response and, and, and a lot of what you were talking about, also about how the, um, the, the studios fall back on rationalizations that we hear over and over and over again that are essentially self-fulfilling prophecies. I mean, they, you know, you can't expect audiences to come out on a regular basis unless you're making movies for them. You know, it's a, that's, that's the bottom line. And if you only make movies for one particular audience, then that's the audience you're going to get. So it becomes self-fulfilling. Um, I think that the, um, the only signs that I see at this point that would um, argue against the reality that we're going to slip into yet another cycle of people forgetting about these successful movies and, and going back on their old habits are some of the things that have already come up, but one is social media, the fact that there is a way for people to push back in a much larger way than was true earlier on. The changing demographics, I think, is also part of it. But I think most importantly, and this speaks to what Lydia was saying about the economics of it, is that the old model simply isn't working anymore. And every time, I mean, when there's major change in Hollywood, it's only because what they're doing by habit stops working. And I think that we're reaching a point where this mass audience way of 
of a mass audience, meaning like this is a movie for all young males. That's the audience that the studios have been chasing since the 70s, that that paradigm isn't really working anymore. I mean, you know, you, for every big superhero movie that gets released and makes a couple hundred million dollars, there's two or three that are failing at the moment. And so the, the, the reality is that this, the advertising methodology that they used to use isn't working because advertising's falling apart in the age of the internet. There's just no way to create the same sort of mass audience response to something. And so when Donna Langley at Universal says, well, look, you know, the way that I'm going to deal with this is rather than take a $200 million bet on another superhero movie that I don't know whether it's got franchise potential or not, let me just take some smaller bets on other audiences and see what happens. And then you end up with the biggest summer in, you know, of any studio. So you know, it, it, it does give me hope that maybe it's not one of those things that's just going to cycle back around again where everybody's going to forget that the audience exists, that maybe there is a change afoot. Uh, I look to Mark because he's someone who writes, uh, writes and has written about the studio system in different decades um, in books and in articles. I mean, how do you I mean, think I, about I this? I tend to think the, the, the studio system will change when the population of the people inside the studios, not just running them, but at every level, will, will yes. change. But one thing I, I just wanted to point out was that, you know, when we use the word diversity, we're actually lumping together a huge number of different struggles, each of which has different challenges. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, for, in terms of gender diversity, you know, there's women are more than 50% of the population, and that's a huge advantage. There are other groups that are, are not going to change that much. I mean, not just African Americans, but LGBT diversity, which is something we haven't brought up, Asian American diversity, Latino, Arab American diversity. I mean, these are different struggles with different challenges. And when we use diversity, what we acknowledge is that they have a common enemy um, and that maybe we can share some of the, <laughs> like, share some of the strategies uh, for, for how to make things better. But there's never going to be a one-size-fits-all solution. And some of these struggles there are things we all have in common with the struggle. There are also things that are particular and individual challenges to each group that we're talking about. And, and that's, that's, why, that's why in all of these panels, we have not solved it. I mean. But I, I think, um, yeah, I just want to echo, though, that I think not being the only one in the room, I'm really happy I'm not the only person of color and not the only woman speaking on a panel, because I usually am, and you guys usually are too, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think, you know, behind the scenes, once that happens, then, you know, when there are more people in positions of um, power, like Jill Soloway, she insists on hiring women directors only for a transparent. And I think she, you know, single-handedly is responsible for shifting that exactly. gender imbalance in TV. So I think that is what's going to sustain Shonda, diversity. And Shonda, let's not forget Lady Shonda. Shonda. of course. Yeah, I was like, I'm a, but the other thing is, I mean, I just want to say, because I feel like, these types of panels and conversations are lovely, but I always leave them sometimes feeling overwhelmed and like kind of hopeless because we talk so big, like studio system. I've never been to studio system. I'm trying to make, you know, I'm just trying to make my little movies or my television. I feel the steps that we can do right now, which is what I'm mean, gonna say like, that's what we do. I hire people of color, women, and people who are qualified. They have, and funny enough, people of color and women are qualified. You mean it's a meritocracy? You know, I'm like, get out of here. So like, even though Matt Damon, I mean, the conversation happened and he was like, we do it behind, I was like, 
okay, I'm not going to be able to change that, but it's my company. I hire, I sign the checks. I'm going to hire you, you, and you. And that's what I feel is making, is making that change because it, people can make a black film or a Latino film or whatever, but everybody behind the scenes is lily white. It defeats the purpose. Absolutely. It defeats the purpose. Absolutely. We, so we you know, when I'm working, I work with Alicia Keys, so we're doing promos I love her. and videos and all these. Her I mean, Levi's, I'm like. Just movies right. or TV shows. <laughs> and one of the, you know, we had a, we were working on a promotional video once and um, the company we were working with sent over this list of all these you know, directors that mm -hmm. we could choose from. And I went through them and they were lovely, you know, artistic, and I thought she would like them. And then I noticed that it was all male names. And I, and I just shot back an email. For, for, I thought about it for a second. And then I thought, no, what the hell am I doing here if not to like annoy these people into at least acknowledging there could be a woman director? And did you get the get? <laughs> I often ask that of like looking, no, no, I say forget available. I've had many, many people for below the line and the agents are like, uh, what? I'm like, you have any women, people of color? Uh, and like literally stumbling over themselves at major agencies. And I'm like, we are out there, like go and get them. Uh, but they, they just, they're just not, they don't, they're just not there. But we are there. They're just not being represented. Absolutely. I mean, that, I'm, I'm And it's really, shocking. It's, and I remember having to go to eight, sorry. No, no I mean, I, I have, I'll tell it, it's a, it's a story that happened to me at Sundance this year after seeing the movie Dope, mm. so, which was a great movie, um, diverse cast, um, black male director. And I went from that movie into another screening. And in that screening, you know, the movie hadn't started, so everybody was chitting, you know, chitter-chattering and gossiping. And there was a woman standing right in front of me, a white woman, talking about how great Dope was. And she was, she was talking to somebody who actually worked with the director. And she's having this conversation about how great the movie was and how you need to get Rick a movie that, that and we need to change that movie. We, we need to you know, get him a comic book, but change it. Oh, and you know, he needs to be with the Tyler Perry family. Oh, I know. Uh. And this is a the thing is, this is a person who has a real job at a real production company and has real power there. Right, and they're dangerous. And they're dangerous. And they're I, very I dangerous was, to us, I, the audience. Because this, this person has the responsibility of going back to her little office in Hollywood and writing lists about who can direct this movie. And if she only puts Rick on a movie that is with black people, well, what does that do for his career? I mean, we're great, and we can make a great movie about us, but like, we should be he able could make also anything. make a movie with white people in it. Mm -hmm. I was so just upset. Not just people. Black and white, but yeah. Mm -hmm. and, and it just, to me, that moment crystallized everything that was a problem, because she didn't see anything wrong with it at all. I had to stop her and say, excuse did you did you see the movie? I, well, what's great is that you were in the room. Like, there's a certain thing of, well, you know what I mean, of, of mm -hmm. sometimes, and this is really upsetting, sometimes being the only woman or person of color, or a down white man, because I know you got this. But gay, sometimes, gay. you know what I mean? You know what I mean? You got down, this. I'm not the patriarchy. I'm gay. I like guys. That's okay. There you go. Look at, him. Look at him. He's claiming it. Yes! I love He's all like, drop the mic. But sometimes we have to be the... The spokesperson. Do you know what I mean? And like, and it's like, an, I am nobody's role model. I am nobody. Like, I am not, I'm not politically correct. But sometimes I've had to be like, 
all right, let me tell you what's jacked up about what you just said. You know what I mean? But you have to sort of quietly get over it, do you know what I mean? And be like, and then you can sort of change them one person at a time. But you have to be in that room in order to change that point of view. I'm in those rooms, I just came from a meeting at Paramount uh, a week ago, and um, there's a woman who's the head of, I don't know what, something big. And um, <laughs> she was laughing when she got off the phone. I'll give you a tiny behind the scenes moment of women in Hollywood. And this is a woman in power. And she was laughing when I came in and, and still on the phone. She said, ah, ha, 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 sorry. Uh, hang on. Oh, Rose, this is such a funny story. You'll get a kick out of this. Um, my friend who's the head of casting here, don't worry, he's gay. Um, just got his movie cast. I'm really happy for him. He cast all the main roles, but he, what, he did, what he does, and this happened on a TV show I was on all the time, is they invent a role for the bikini girl. So the women um, have to come in and audition to get in, in bikinis for the role, and that way they get all the men that need to make all the decisions in the room, and they can make the decision on what men to cast. Ooh. And this is a normal fucking Tuesday afternoon. So you're goddamn right I'm angry right now. I'm sick of it. I'm really, really sick of it. And I, I, and it's okay. He's a gay man. Now, and I said, what your, your friend is actually a pimp. Your friend is trafficking on female bodies. And your friend is disgusting. And I'm sorry, so are you. And I got up and walked out. I doubt I'll be working with Paramount. I'm okay with that. Damn. <laughs> she must have a so there's that. And drop the mic. And Hollywood. The stuff I've seen would make hairs curl. And I'm sure the stuff a lot of us have seen, but coming at it from the perspective of like the person that they consider lucky to be there. Yeah, it's a lot. For an unprotected girl in Hollywood for many years. I can tell you I've seen some things. Like this, but now we all want to know, like, like what else? <laughs> I'll talk for y'all because I'm like this, and I know I'm there, and I'm like, I know I heard some stuff, but like, what did you? <laughs> we'll talk. In the in the comments that Manola made that I read earlier, she referred to a report from the Directors Guild, um, and it struck me because uh, she wrote, "There's talk of a modest quote-unquote improvement in the number of women hired to direct for television and the internet." So the natural question that I had is the future of diversity to be relegated to the smaller screen? Uh, or is the future in the smaller screen? I was like two, two, it was a 2% improvement over last year and for TV and a 1% step back for people of color. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I don't know. I feel like film is very, is very behind TV. I think TV, especially this season, seems to be a lot more diverse. Um, and uh, I feel like film is becoming like theater. I mean, it's continuing uh, to become like theater, uh -huh. where it's, it's a very rarefied art form that is for white people mostly, unfortunately. That's interesting. Um, I mean, I also, sorry, go ahead. Um, I, I feel that no matter what, TV is challenging film no matter what. Forget diversity or whatever. It's just that you're able to do, in my opinion, longer form content and able to get more uh, into the character. So TV is making a huge challenge no matter what. I love the fact that you have powerful women showrunners who are making sure, and even like Lee Dan, like people are making sure that we are people of color and inclusion. Um, diversity might be a different, I'm gonna start trying to use the word inclusive because people like diversity and they fall deaf but of getting more, um, getting more people involved. I feel that like, and just on the economics of film alone, like I'm the queen of the little movie and I'm over it. 
Like it's so rare to make money on a little movie and it's so hard to make money on a little movie. So the internet and also doing TV, I think is the way to go no matter what. And the fact that we can be there and hold down the fort, I love it. I, I don't think we're just there. I think we're actually kind of kicking ass. Yes! And that was like, I go. mean, if Empire is the number one show on broadcast TV yes. right now, and now everybody, and they have actually for the past few years since Shonda started kicking ass. Shonda. Scandal, yeah, how to get away with murder, right? Like we black women in TV are actually quite. Janine Barwa, there's a lot, there's a lot of, yeah. There's a lot of, there's other showrunners. I mean, that this is the space that we can own. And, and people want us because, to you know, be it's so funny way. because like men, and this is interesting, I feel that like men, the studio system has been so male that they sort of like, remember like it wasn't cool for stars to do TV? Oh, do you remember that? Do you remember that back in the day? And now, and like I felt like they were like, oh, who cares about TV? And they were doing the studio. And little did they know, we're like, we're kicking ass over in TV. And now we're formidable. That's right. I want to be formidable with them. <laughs> I, I think that one cool thing that's happening in TV is that um, in certain categories, including women of color, we're getting to this point where there's actually freedom to fail. Like, if, if one of these shows, because saying like, you know, give us a chance, we'll prove it, we'll make a success, it's like a great economic argument and it's also a devil's bargain because it invites people when something flops to say, uh, well, see, you know, we tried Viola Davis, it just didn't work. Now, there's so much going on in network TV that if one of these new fall shows flops or whatever, people aren't gonna say, oh, well, you know, we, we just can't do yeah. it anymore. And yeah. freedom to fail is That's a quality huge. because no one ever says, well, no more movies with Adam Sandler. I mean, <laughs> it's like, you know. Pity that, pity that. I, um, I worked on a... Tell us a story about that. I worked on, well, I can tell you lots of stories about that. Uh, I worked on a female-led uh, show the longest... I was on it for five years, five long, long years. And it was on for eight years. It was the longest running female-led show in history, which it's gotten no props for, but I'll give it that. And um, it had only two female directors in the entire five years I was there. And they were both submarine by the crew and certainly by the boys club behind the scenes. And um, they literally said, well, we tried a female director. And I'm like, that's like saying, oh, well, an Adam Sandler movie bombed. We're not going to do it again. You know what I mean? Like, come on. Like, it's yeah. just like, it's time to wrap the microphone cable around their necks and just drag them from the fucking room. I love how militant you are. I, I love am it. militant. Like, she's all like, my dad said I was born with a fist up, and I have to say, I really am. I always have been like that. I'm, I don't go, I mean, I'm a soft and lovely person when I don't want to punch people in the face. But right now we're talking about a subject that makes me angry. So there you go. And you know, it's okay. We're, we're also not used to seeing women angry. We're not used to seeing that, because I saw myself on an interview like for Broadly, this Vice thing, and I was the only one that was kind of blistering, and I was at first even shocked by myself. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, what's, what's weird about this? Oh wait, we're never used to seeing women actually angry, unless it's like angry at a man in a scene. Uh, totally. Or being angry in business, or having, um, like on Project Greenlight last week, I had an interaction with, uh, with one of the mentors and it was interesting because to me I didn't curse, I didn't raise my voice. When I get into conflict I start talking like this and I talk like my mother and I get very, but I get very clipped and I get to the point. And it was interesting because I was treated like, oh, she is angry. And I'm like, if you do, this is not angry. I'm like, if you want to see angry, this is, you know. But, like, but it was really interesting how we're not allowed to have um, that type of reaction. 
at you know, all. You know, at all, which was really interesting. Like, stop to me. taking my voice and away. And a man can have that sort of, and a lot of women executives, not just in film, um, but a lot of uh, yeah. female executives have this where it's like where you speak and they can hear screaming, or if you're, you're being aggressive, like when it's like, I need a cur-, like, you know, then you're like, oh, it's not good. We need you softer. It's like, what the hell? Can I just be me? And they're like, no. <laughs> think, a, and I'm like, fictional. I don't care. The, you know, the director numbers are like the toughest, um, I think, across, across the board in the industry. And, and the writer numbers in television yeah. are some of the most promising. And, and um, right? Well, producing has always been kind yeah. of a bastion for women. Yeah. Like yeah, the one area but although only twenty five percent, still not films were like a twenty five percent. But in television, it's I higher. guess compared, to and it's higher, and movie. it's higher, and in, in, um, yeah, yeah, and cinematographers, and I, and, I, and, and I think the sure. and I think the information, and you know, we, we focused a lot on this in our toolkit is that you know what happens when you have a, a female showrunner, and what happens when when you you know when you have women writers, and then what how does the presence of women characters and the stories change and and access to your audience. What was, the sto- what was the show that a female showrunner was there and the, uh, most of the writer's room was women and then she left, a man took over and then all of it, the whole, am I making this up? Mm. I might be. Mm. Was it, yeah, and, like, and, then, and then it yeah, just it sort of tanked, right? right? Yeah, mm-hmm. and they're just noticing that right. people, you know, people hire people that they know or that, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I feel, I think other people have talked about this. I was watching, when I was watching the Emmys and uh, the Game of Thrones guys won their mm-hmm. Emmy for, um, for writing and producing. And, and they got up and they thanked HBO for giving the show to two guys who didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> and I thought to myself, that's so interesting that they would give two white guys their own show, but they wouldn't give Lena Dunham her own show. They put a man on the show with her to be the showrunner. You know, they... Uh, well, I think um, Jenny Connor is really considered <laughs> the and, and, showrunner and with Jenny, Lena. Right. Yeah. But they had to put, you know, Judd yeah. on as well. Yeah. Um, with Shonda Rhimes, the first mm-hmm. show that she did, Grey's Anatomy, there was a man on it the first year. I can honestly say there, if a man had directed it, my film, been nominated for Grand Jury Prize at Sundance and qualified for the Oscar, he'd probably be having things coming out of his ass right now. And it's not the case. I'm fighting my ass off, but it's, mm-hmm. it, is, it is so glaringly apparent. It's literally embarrassing, but it's not embarrassing to me. It should be embarrassing to them. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's all, you know, it's, what, you're, what you're describing happens a lot. You know, I think that opportunities are given to newbies who are white men. And, you know, whether they're directors or writers or stars, you know, Hollywood is willing to put their money, marketing dollars, behind an unknown white guy, who, the guy in Stonewall. Who is he? You know, Wonder Woman, who is she? Gal, whatever, I can't even pronounce her last name, but they will not put their P&A dollars behind uh, an actor of color, you know, they'll just lay back on the excuse of, oh, they don't sell overseas, and nobody knows who they are. Nobody knows who Jeremy Irvine is. Nobody knows who Gal Gadot, Gadot is, you know? And it's just, we're not given the same opportunity. Like Viola Davis said in her Emmy speech, it's like, we need the opportunity, um, and we just don't get them. Uh, this is becoming a downer conversation. How can we get the opportunity? I want, Sorry, I'm like, let's lift it up. What do you guys think? <laughs> I want to see. I actually do want to. I already want to make a point before we take some questions. Well, no, I was just going to say that this is the aspect of things that has. I, 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 I've never even heard a rationalization that made sense. Mm-hmm. You know, it just is the when you when you hear about those sorts of things where you know where, you know, some 18 year old who made you know a short film ends up getting a you know to do a hundred million dollar superhero movie. And then you talk about the struggles that you're having with a, an award-winning film. I, I don't get and it. And you have I just, experience in the business. I've yeah. spent over 57,000 hours on sets and yeah, studied insane. every aspect of filmmaking. Yes, I do. 
actually, and it, it is, does, uh, it is depressing, sorry. It is depressing, I mean, it's depressing, but also I'm gonna fight the good fight and I'm gonna put stuff out there and I'm gonna make stuff that counts and I'm gonna make stuff for us because that's what we need. But there's been, I mean, you know, again, trying to be positive, there's been way more attention to this issue. There recently. is, but it doesn't mean they necessarily know what to do with the attention is well, where it yeah, gets, yeah. that's, well, that's where it gets that, the disconnect. Yeah, and even if we're talking about, like, Enlightened, I have two gay male friends that are showrunners, but they had to hire a straight guy showrunner to showrun with them. Um, and then also these guys in the writer's room are talking, it's a feminist Latina show, supposed to be, but it's now radically changing to be the male's focus and point of view, and that um, they were discussing in the writer's room last week whether the, the lead actress had a hot enough ass, and whether, I mean, this stuff is real. Yeah. Really, really real. And I, and I get it, like, a lot of times, I think, produce, they're not, I don't know what goes on. I'm like, are you guys not in the same world that I'm in, or, like, room that I'm in? Because the stuff I know is, like, down and dirty, and, like, dark, like, really dark stuff. And these aren't people that would supposedly you would look at and think they would be like that because they wouldn't act like that around the outside world. But I get to, you know, it's it's. And it's I think really that, I think I think you know, Ira's right that we this this ish, these issues are still are really prevalent right now. And I think a big part of it is the bottom line it has to do with the bottom line it has to do with these films with women and people of color doing well. So I go, what you guys can do as audience members is just to be more discerning about the movies you watch and, you know, and don't go out and support white savior movies because we're so tired of those. Yes. And, you know, and I, I, this kind of brings me to Game Changer. I wanted to speak a little bit about you introduced it as an initiative, Eugene, which I hate that word because mm -hmm. it's not an initiative. It's a company. Mm -hmm. It's a for profit company that invests equity in movies, and a lot of people use the, ter the terms initiative and organization because it's, it's a company that finances women directors only. Mm -hmm. And so automatically they think, oh, it's not a for-profit endeavor, it's a charity. You know, mm -hmm. women, women are charities. So I just want to make sure that it, you, know, you guys know it's not an initiative, it's a company. We want to make money, we're investing in movies that we well, I see will a little sell. something right here, a little business <laughs> being made. That's <laughs> yes. Get out of the way. That's what I was like. I was like, and and we've that. made four features so far. Three three have premiered and sold, and uh, we're in the black, which is great for you know the one time black is good. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> I think lots of times. Hi, this is Violet Luca, digital editor of Film Comet magazine. The September October issue of Film Comet is the ultimate insider's guide to the 53rd New York Film Festival. You can read two interviews with Ho Shao Shen about his hotly anticipated new film, The Assassin. Plus, Robert Zemeckis gives his no-nonsense take on the art and industry that brought his new movie, The Walk to the Screen. Other features include Scott Amon on swashbuckling silent film legend Douglas Fairbanks, Howard Hampton on Arnaud Desplechen's My Golden Days, his follow-up to My Sex Life, or How I Got Into an Argument, and David Thompson on Michael Almereda's Experimenter, which shrewdly dramatizes Stanley Milgram's infamous experiments on obedience. Grab your copy in print or digital for only $5.95. I want to see where the audience wants to go or what kind of questions they have. If you just promise me you'll wait for the microphone before you ask your question so that folks on the podcast and the video can hear. So uh, maybe we can go up here uh, in the second row and then we'll work our way over to the other side. Hi, I'm Lisa Kelly. 
This is awesome. This is a great, great panel to see. I was lucky enough to hear Ursula Burns, uh, the CEO and chairperson of uh, Xerox, speak on Friday at an event about minority and women-owned businesses. So my question that has had me thinking about this, hopefully, and I also was able to see Congressman John Lewis today, and he talked a lot about hope and the process. Uh, and a lot of the struggles that um, all different people have gone through. And so in the spirit of possibly hope uh, coming out of this, is there, I'm wondering what anybody's thoughts are about corporations. Does it have to be the studios? Because there are companies like, I mean, I don't, I don't work for Xerox, but I mean, obviously she was talking about a message of diversity and people giving back. You know, is there, a, there are other places out there to get movies made where the money could come from, where there are other types of distribution. If it's a self-policing town, can we get out of that town and make movies somewhere else? I don't know if that's something that's even possible or something that any of you have tried or thought about, but I'm wondering if that's something that we could try to do besides just boycotting the next Transformers movie. Which is you're already going to do. Well, me personally, yes. Oh, and last thing, just because this is awesome, if other people would possibly send out a lot of social media about this particular event since we talked about it, I think there have been some great quotes, and I hope there's a lot of promotion about what's been said here. Thanks. Thank you. You're talking about working outside the system. The answer is absolutely, and I think that's what independent filmmakers have been doing forever. I mean, that's, I kind of come up doing that. What's interesting, and I love the fact that corporations are doing it as well. Like, I believe that Macro, which is uh, owned by Charles King, isn't it the... Netflix. Netflix, but also micro, um, oh, the uh, Microsoft woman, or the Apple no, woman. Apple. The Steve Apple woman. Do you like the fact about the Apple woman? Isn't that terrible? <laughs> How's that for disrespectful? <laughs> uh, right, you know, I mean, it's actually, yeah. they're funding these companies that are about uh, inclusion. So I'm all over that, and if any corporation would like to help finance Duly Noted Inc., I am more than open. Uh, so yeah, so I think, that, I think that's a really, uh, a really positive way to go, and I think we've been doing that. But I think you can look to the international market and, you know, I mean, the U.S. is like, I don't know, we're like down at number 29 right, you, in terms of the keep saying international with love in my heart. Yeah. You keep saying international, but mm -hmm. they still have that thing of like black doesn't travel international or if mm -hmm. you're a person of color, women even, they're like, oh, you don't really do. It's mm -hmm. still a battle over there. Do you That's think not, it's true? I pers personally, mm -hmm. no, I don't. But do mm -hmm. I think I have the sales people and the distribution mm -hmm. people and the publicity people to yeah. make that not true? Mm -hmm. No. Right. I mean, it was interesting, the conversation at Toronto this year is yeah. what is the future of international sales estimates because the, the digital distribution, everything mm -hmm. is changing so much that, I, and I'm very interested in <clears throat> that conversation because yeah. I, most of my films get financed independently and those sales estimates drive everything right. to do with financing. So, I mean, it's, there, it's inter it'll be an interesting conversation to track going forward. Um, but... Um, but, but internet, yeah, I mean, international is the same thing. I mean, the Gina Davis Institute did, yeah. did a study this year. Um, she took like the top, you know, top 10 box office countries and they ran the same numbers and pretty much got the same statistics that, you know, we've gotten here in North America. So, it, so the, the, the battle is the same, the, but I think that the, the difference is that we're living in a globalized world and, and you know, we need to start thinking about, Ira and I were just talking about this before, um, in terms of movie, you know, and, and we saw it in the Michael Moore film, that, that people outside of America are less, less and less interested in America. 
And so, you know, there are... <laughs> There are, you know, there are ways to, to you know, I think, that the, the, I think that the international film labs are great places for young people to go, you know, take your scripts and workshop your projects and meet right. people and network. And the, the film that I did, The Lunchbox, with a young Indian director, um, you know, he was, he was part, he, he did that, like, to the max. You know, he, we, we went to Cinemark, we went to, um, you know, IFP, and he was in the Berlin town campus, and... And it just, it, it revved up. So it ended up being a German, French, Indian, and I was the U.S. partner, um, mm -hmm. co-production. And he, his sole intention was to make sure that he reached an international audience. He didn't want to just be a small Indian film that didn't get out of the country. So he, it, it actually would have been much more efficient for me to just raise the $2 million in America and finance the film, but he really was committed to this structure because he wanted to, he wanted to reach a global audience, which, which you know, he, and he was very successful. He was right. He was right with that approach. Just to finish with your question, um, the financing out there is diversifying. I mean, the studios, of course, are still financing blockbusters, but you know, Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, although those are being populated by old, old studio people, um, it seems. Uh, but you know, like uh, Refinery29, BuzzFeed, Vice, and all these kind of new media, yeah. Condé Nast, they have their own video, video division, so I think a lot of um, you know, me media companies that weren't doing video are doing video now. I just wanted to bring up Furious 7, as strange as it sounds, for a minute, because, it, I mean... It's, no, it, keep going, absolutely. The first time that title has ever been said at Lincoln Center. But, um, <laughs> like, I mean, in a way, it's an example of how a movie can be one step forward in one area of diversity, one step backward, say, in gender representation. But this movie, with a genuinely ethnically diverse cast, yeah. made more than a billion dollars overseas. Because it it's looks like what people look like, right. minus right. the girl right. issue. Absolutely. It's also set a little in Abu Dhabi, a little in Japan, a lot in Europe. I, I mean, I think for big high-end blockbusters, that movie five years from now may be seen as the start of a, a different future. Mm -hmm. um, that could be. I mean, I have to say, I mean, for my mandate is I'm absolutely doing films with people of color and women and genre, thriller, action, sci-fi, horror. It's time for us to go that way. And that's where I feel that Fast and Furious 7, you know exactly what you're going to get. People will come and see it, and then you're just like, oh, look, it looks like America. Like, that's a twofer. I want to see more women in it. I want to see us having our own superhero. That's what I feel. Yes. There was another question in the second row, and then we'll work our way up. Um, I want to go with what he said, um, adding that, yeah, I remember this quote from a Spanish filmmaker. She's a female director. She's pretty famous. Isiar Boyain, she, well, I don't know who might know her, but she said something like she's tired of seeing people that consider her movie as a girl movie because she can make movies for, for male, male audiences. And, yeah, I'm, I'm a writer. I can make characters that are extremely interesting as many other men has always made stories about women giving birth when they have no idea what it is about so i can write interesting male characters that are might be even feministic like they might be for pro-feminism and that's something that we bring into the table that nobody else is doing um and with that, I want to say, I, I read yesterday through uh, Huffington Post uh, an article about Paul Feig. He's a director. I don't particularly don't like 
all of his movies, but I'm, I, I shouldn't say this because I might be working someday from it. So <laughs> I say exactly. exactly. We will all take but, a check. But I'm just going to say this because he did, he did blockbusters as well. He did, he did uh, box office winning movies as a spy and, and bridesmaid, I think. And he, what I liked about this article is so interesting because he said something like, you know, in my career, there was points that I, I got really down. Like, nobody won. I was a completely failure economically. Nobody wanted to put any money in my ideas. And that's something that many women cannot do. Like, and it's, it's along with what we were saying. We, and with, with meritocracy, we're not, we're not allowed to, you know, to, to, yeah, to fail. And, and that's what, what has to change of this society, really. Like, we need to allow ourselves, even, I'm sorry, I, I'm, Lately, so in love with Amy Schumer and all that she does, because she's she's pretty much putting out there that that she's clumsy, she's she's completely not politically correct, but not necessarily in an offensive way. Just she doesn't take her seriously. And we as women, when we go, I'm a, I might be an intern someday, and when I go to an interview, like I need to be like there's many men, as you said, people who are given projects that. They didn't even know what they're doing. I have to be knowing what I'm doing. I have to go there and, you know, like act all like I know everything about any program, software. When, when probably even men don't even have to do that. They can start talking about whatever and that would be. <laughs> so my question would be, when have you find a situation when like you, you were told and how do you respond to it? Or how do you shift the conversation when you were told, well, you, you don't do things like men do. Like you you don't look, that your topics are for men, you know? Like they could also be interested in what you do. That's my question, sorry. That's it. The way I Not do it stuff. is I just tell them they're wrong and why. Right. That's I mean, me. I think, yeah, I mean, I have to be a little bit more um, savvy because being black and a woman, do you know, and dealing with large sums of money, and I'm behind the scenes. Do you know what I mean? I have to. Usually, I'm propping up my. Yeah, I'm in my own weird category. Do you, no, no, but you know, no, 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 but like you know, but you're a star. You know what I mean? You're recognizable. People love you. You know, I'm trying to work within the system to get something done. Um, and I think honestly, like I'm not like I'm not trying to like plug the show because I don't get paid from it. Like I really, it's not. But like watching Project Greenlight is like a daily thing of like what someone of a woman or a person of color has to go through and that's not even a hostile environment but having the kind of conversations that you have to have how you can't be like the rest of everybody else you know you can't be like a guy because people are like oh now you're screaming you're the angry we have the angry black woman right so and i'm not politically correct that's not my yeah right but i'm saying and then, just so you know the whole movie's white um but um but that, that's what I mean, so I have, to, I, I have to go one step further. And to be honest about it as well, I have to be twice as smart, twice as whatever to get half of it. Do you know what I mean? That like, it, that's just what it is. I can't, I don't have the liberty of going in and being like, I don't know. And, and you, I also feel like I have to be the, um, the teacher for people. So I have to explain why your pitch might be really offensive because it's about a magical Negro. Oh and my God, I want to do a movie about a magical Negro. <laughs> totally, it's That's like so real. Magical yeah. Native American. I have to actually, like the fact that I have to explain that to somebody in 2015, and they're just like, what is, what, can I Google? I'm like, yeah, actually, you can Google. There, there's, there's a white savior, even, even the white savior trope people don't know about. Yeah. Like, it's so basic. But it, it, 
the fact that it's still happening now, and I know how it happened. I know that nobody on the other, you know, there were the agent, there were multiple agents and assistants and writers, and they're all one color. And they get to me, and I'm like, uh, there's a there's a problem here, and I'm gonna have now I'm gonna have to tell you what it is, and I'm gonna have to explain it to you, and then I'm gonna have to like maybe even not make money because you're gonna be like, God, she's a pain to work with. But I'm. But that's your cost that's, to bear. Yeah. That's my like you I'm have gonna, to be the role. I'm gonna say it. I'm I'm gonna say it because otherwise they're gonna look like idiots. They already do kind of, and then I'm I can't be a part of it. But I I can maybe change it. Yeah. A little bit, right? Like maybe I can make an impact and maybe they can be like, oh, you're making a good point. You have to remember that, you know, we've had 100 years of movies starring white men. And, you know, white men are the stand-ins for every man, every, the everyman, yeah. as the writer of Noah said. <laughs> That's why we cast all white people because they're, they're, they're the everyman. And so white men are the only type of individual that gets afforded that power of individuality. All the rest of us, our race and our gender and our sexuality stands right before us. And you know, I think a lot of people, we've been assaulted with these images of white men being the hero, being, you know, having the individuality, having the multidimensionalism, and this is like cultural imperialism all over the world, mm. so you have, to, you have to remember. So um, when people come at you with seemingly ignorant, you know, ignorant comments and and things like that. Oh, only women can, can direct movies, you know, starring other women. You have to remember that that's how they, they've been brainwashed that way over 100 years of images on screen. Yeah. Okay, where's our microphone? Um, we can go, let's see, I do want to go towards the back. So do you mind if we go there and then we'll work back over? Hi. Um, my name is Macarena. I'm here with Agnes. We are both uh, young filmmakers who are working on a short film right now. And as it turns out, just by coincidence, not because we tried, we have an all-girl team. We have a female producer. I'm a film female director. Agnes is a female actress and writer. And we are totally confident. We're in pre-production stage and we're confident about handling crew. We're more than used to it. And so we're not afraid about production, getting funding. We're working on that. But we are a little bit uncertain about distribution. Mm. And we are actually promoting ourselves as um, female directors who are trying to raise awareness about subjects that females go through and our story is about a female who goes through domestic violence which is something that happens to one in every seven females in the US and I just wanted to know if you have any advice for us um, as for distribution uh, it would do you think that that the fact that we are we don't have any males on the lead could be an inconvenience when presenting to festivals and trying to get our film out there? Who's your would target you audience? Would you accept an answer from a white guy? Uh, um, I, more than just a white guy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. Uh, I, I, I mean, I, it sounds to me like you've got a really good angle that, yeah. that you actually could get you a lot of attention. And, and I don't, I mean, if the movie's good, I don't think you'll have 
a problem finding an audience for it. That's my feeling. You talk about a short film, so we're not talking about trying to make $100 million at the box office. So that would be a different equation. But, um, but it does sound to me like you've got a really good backstory, and that's a big part of the battle. Thank you. I, I just want to mention that, I, you know, when you, when you go out to pitch your projects, um, you know, at any given company, there's a number of different people that you might choose or your producer may have, you know, access to, to pitch to. And, and it's a good idea to know who you're pitching to and whether you think they might have receptivity to the project that you're pitching. And, you know, when I had a teen girl movie, if I was going to be going to pitch where they were mostly men, I would try to find out if they had daughters. You know, I, I mean, you know, preferably I would be pitching to women. Um, when we screened a cut for Disney of the movie that we have in post right now, I asked the executive to make sure that 50% of the people who he was watching it with were going to be women in the company. And um, I just, I think that you have to, you, you have to think a little bit proactively about who you're targeting, who you're talking to, who's going to be responsive to the perspective that you're bringing to. And it's not easy, but um, most studios and networks do have diversity reps and they're all different and some are great and some are not so great. But I mean, HBO has Kelly Edwards, yeah, who, um, who her whole, they hired her as an executive, you know, so that um, I mean, her whole job is to kind of bring more, you know, bring more ideas of you know people behind the camera, you know, as, as well as in and front of the camera. And also fostering new new talent as well, the HBO Access program. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, everybody should you know should try to get to know if you're if you're pitching your content and if you're producers or if you don't have a producer, you should get a producer. Um, but you really want. A, you really want to really try to focus um, and make sure you're pitching to in the right way, you know, to the people that are going to hear it the loudest. And I think oftentimes, really quick, sorry to that, and of of pitching and and getting to to know and, and, and not just enlightening but just shifting and it's like oh okay it's the, so many of these men they're not these terrible men that are desperately yeah. trying to keep everybody out it just doesn't occur to them so just a, yeah. have it occur to them and they're like oh okay and then once it occurs to them sometimes great things happen um, I had a question um, one, we've talked a lot about production and distribution and what happens before a film gets made and I was curious to hear what you guys thought about how do we educate audiences? Because this is a very insular group to some extent. We're at the Film Society, we're in New York City. There are people who live all over the country and all over the world who go see movies. How, if given that something like Straight Outta Compton and Trainwreck have um, made more money than every, any studio thought they would ever make, there's going to be now, inevitably, five more straight out of Comptons that are directed and produced by white people. Or, and there are going to be, you know, five to ten other train wrecks that are produced and directed by white people. So the whole idea of having films that are diverse from an audience perspective, yes, that's happened. And so with studios being the ones who are the tastemakers, unfortunately, for most people who go to see movies, I wondered what your guys' perspective was on the idea of audiences. How do we educate mass audiences about these changes? Because if we don't do it there, we're kind of just doing all this in a bubble. But see, I think the audiences are there. Yeah. And, my, and, and, I, and the thing that I, you know, why I am so 
excited about Effie exposing, you know, this disconnect is because that's the conversation and I think that's the real work that we all have to do. And, you know, the um, Sundance started a women's filmmaker initiative yeah. with all these allied organizations that, you know, and they've been, you know, we're, we're actually having a, sum there's a summit next week with, um, you know, with decision makers in Hollywood to talk about actionable steps to, but, but, but it's I the education invited. of the fact that the, that diverse perspectives will is what brings the authentic story, mm -hmm. and and the authentic story is what galvanizes the audience because you know and, and you don't find your audience in one place anymore. So I think the right. the potential is greater, you know, yeah. because we you know and we're seeing it a little bit in television, and I th I think that we just I, you know I think it's it's on us. And I'll say because I'm a little older, I've been doing oh, this no. 30 years, so I don't <laughs> mind sticking my neck out there because I'm only gonna be doing a few more but um, I, I think that I think we're seeing that with older women and people all over the place I mean when, I mean what took Meryl Streep so long to right? stand out I mean yeah. like I mean you know she's got she's the power but mm -hmm. I think things are happening I think the Sony hacking thing with you know with the pay disparity yeah, very, I think the ACLU coming down and saying you know mm -hmm. maybe there is pur purposeful discrimination is the term I mean that scares the shit out of the studios right. so you know so I think all these things that are happening are really great and, and we just have to keep pushing right. that disconnect because that's the thing that I think will push it like over the edge. But you know what's interesting? No, but what I think about it's social like a chiropractic like, adjustment really for the mind and I feel like talking to people on social media, like for sure having them literally, why don't you, if there's like another movie that's coming out that's like, God, another one of those? Like I would like have every one of my Twitter followers like yeah. try to like text like find the Twitter of the like studio head just go after it. that's what I'm saying and that's what I'm saying I do feel or like the marketing people or somebody just like, to wake them yeah. up just shake them a little bit it's not yeah. too bad just just a little bit yeah but you're shaking no, not you. like, she's like I'm shook I'm shook no, no. but I wonder like is anyone like uh, thinking about the uh, the call and response of the audience, like the Twitter, the fa the Twitter, the Twitter, the that's Facebook, all of that, because that's where the I know I'm 43, honey. Um, that's where the audience is. You know, what I mean, those are the people, and and they are incredibly, I think, well, incredibly I connected. Think, I think that the, there's a good example that just happened recently when. Um, the author of the new James Bond book mm -hmm. wrote that Idris Elba was too street to play James Bond, and the the incredible that? response <laughs> that he got, the, just immediate like, no, he's not too street, and by the way, he needs to. As they say, it's street. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> like, but it was instant. It was instantaneous on on online, and he apologized. Right. I mean, I think, and I think that's really interesting. But what's also interesting is that The Martian is like the number one movie right now and then some. So like even though everybody was all in a flutter about Matt Damon, that wasn't enough to like stop a ticket. I mean, don't get it twisted. I will go see Jason Bourne, like just because I love it. But I just think that's, in, you know, just something to think about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, I think... I think often the audience educates us. I mean, you know, Straight Outta Compton made $160 million domestically, which is way more than the people who made that movie thought it was going to make. Um, Roland Emmerich makes Stonewall and makes this big, big speech about how he doesn't really care about reaching straight people. It's important to have a cute, straight-acting boy in the center of it because it's important to bring in straight people, and nobody goes. I mean, like, 
Not that I don't think the public is always right. I don't think the public, uh, the marketplace should determine everything. But I think the the audience in, in movies and especially in TV has been sending a lot of messages saying that they are very, very receptive to uh, diverse uh, filmmaking and programming. And my frustration is in seeing how how invested certain quadrants of the business are in not hearing that, yeah. in, in viewing every diverse thing as an exception if it succeeds. Um, so I'm happy to let the audience keep doing its work. I think it's doing its work right now better than the people who are, you know, in charge of greenlighting stuff. When, when you're talking about audience building, one point I want to make is just that it's historically, over and over and over again, when people have a really good experience at a movie or a television show, they want to repeat that experience. They actually want to go to see more movies. But the problem is that the follow-ups are always these cynical copycat movies that don't really get to the heart of what it was that was special about that movie. And instead, they just create some formulaic something and, and the audience gets burned and then they don't come back. And, and you know, there's a, a fundamental um, problem that's always existed with movies, theatrical movies, as opposed to, and this is the reason I believe television is so successful right now, which is that every time you come out with something, you're starting from scratch in terms of trying to audience build. What television has finally caught on to is that when you serialize something and somebody has a good experience, they keep coming back over and over and over again. Nobody's figured that out for theatrical movie going yet. Although film festivals sort of get at it a little bit or, you know, things like that, but, but it's not, you know, we, we haven't come up with a structure that, that, that gets over that inherent problem of having to start from scratch every time you put a movie into the marketplace. But that's also, don't you think, possibly the inherent problem of who's behind the scenes? Well, of, of course, but, but, that, but that again... That goes one but, to the other. Yeah, like, but again, it's, it's like, you know, you give audiences something authentic that they really like and well, they want Well, then it's the more. cynical, right. But then it would behoove these people to then go deeper and broader and think, ah, if this is the audience, then let's reflect that behind. And, the, and then there's an organic and true voice coming out of it instead of the cynical, like, number cruncher voice, which people are savvy enough and feel and don't like. And it's a turnoff. And they've been doing that since time immemorial. But it's obviously, if there's a reason that it's not working, and I don't believe the paradigm is working for them, maybe it's time to change. That's all. Well, I'm we'll just, get any disagreement No, I know you're not going to disagree with me, but that's, that's the only part where there's a disconnect in their brains. It's like, uh, instead of looking out at the audience, they might need to look inwards at themselves and maybe see what's around them and next to them. I We're going to go just a few more minutes, but I want to ask one more question of the panel, and then we'll take a couple final questions. But it was that call and response that led us to want to gather this group today, and in particular um, around um, the dialogue that was brought up around what happened with you, Rose, and, and the situation with your representation this summer, Effie, with you on Project Greenlight just in the past few weeks. And I wonder, just to follow up on the point we were just making about this kind of call and response, this kind of immediate um, conversation that, that can be instigated and how to harness that. Um, what has surprised you most, the two of you, Rose and Effie, about the dialogues that grew around each of you, um, positively or negatively? Ooh, that's really interesting. I mean, but, I mean, I have learned that people can say some terrible, terrible things on Twitter. <laughs> And can hurt your feelings, real, you know. Um, I mean, but I, I will say what, what really surprised me 
is that, and, this is, and I want this to sound condescending, that you guys got it. Like, I really did think that I was alone. I really, I swear, I really thought that I was alone of like, with the whole, with that whole diversity comment, I was like, well, maybe like black Twitter will get it. Do you know, for real, and I even said that when I talked to the HBO, I was like, black Twitter is real. I'm not kidding, I really said, I'm like, you need to make sure that like, and but what really made me feel great is that like, it grew. Like, you know, I'm getting a little like, it got, it became a bit of a moment and everybody, like black, white, Asian, everybody was, in my opinion, came out and was like, this doesn't make any goddamn sense. So, and that's what, that's what really surprised me what also surprised me was that there is a whole contingent of, like I call him like right wing man is what he calls himself, like how that made some people come out hard. Like come out where I was a little nervous of like, I'm not a star. I'm like, do I need to protect myself? Because people get really irate when you challenge their blind spot or you challenge their icon. So that was, really, that was really deep for me. And then the other thing is, what's also interesting, I was left, I love HBO, I love the experience now, but I still haven't heard from Matt Damon. Huh. I haven't heard oh. a goddamn thing. Wow. Do you know what I mean? It really hurts me because I always, I mean, I have to say, like, it really, starting the show, he was the, one of the people that I was super excited to be with because I knew that he's so smart, he's so... I don't care what anyone says. He's very intelligent. He's very thoughtful. He's a super cool guy. And then just to be like, wow, you must think I'm the fucking devil. Do you excuse my language? But like, not just to be like, and then like in tonight's thing, I really got to see like, oh, you really just don't like me. And I don't know why, but I have a feeling it's because I'm a little too in my, in my strength, I guess, or in my lane. Or you just might not like me. What the hell do I know? <laughs> I think it's just a weakness of character. Yeah. I don't think it has to do with you. But everything's about me. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a uh, narcissist. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. As, as far as my thing goes, you know, I uh, got fired by my agency after tweeting something about something that was just so banal to me that I thought it was like almost just so dumb it was amusing. And um, I think they weren't prepared for me to out them on Twitter. Mm. And the, I knew like the people that generally talk to me on there are pretty with it, very generally awake. Um, I did Twitter something about the NRA the other day, so that brought a whole different boys to the yard, so to speak. <laughs> oh, good spelling, good spelling. Um, but it's, it's been very, it's odd when you get to be part of the zeitgeist, like even just for like a news, a couple news cycles, and it's a very strange sensation. Uh, made my stomach very tight, and I'm not gonna lie. When I got fired from my agency, I had this moment of like, <gasps> like this, this stress, and then I was like, go fuck yourselves. I hate you, and I really do. I don't like everything you are, and I don't like what you stand for, and and you make me sad. You make me sad that you're willing to be that kind of a weak person, and that you're willing to live that kind of a weak life. I actually am more sad for a lot of these people than I am angry because it's just like, what a crap way to experience humanity through that kind of like scared, like kind of, kind of male perspective that's like scared of anybody going boo or like stepping out of line. There's a real thing, the way they treat actresses in that town. And I've, I will say it to a lot of the female producers and people that I know that uh, the ones that I've met that are kind of in the boys club mentality that uh, actresses, you get treated um, like you wear a short skirt, you deserve it. Ooh. And that's the number one 
they, they start there. And there's a deep problem with disrespect. A deep problem. It's like, no, no. I'm a human and I'm an artist. I am no better and no worse than you. You will not treat me this way. Not anymore. So that's where my stand is. Um, we are almost out of time. And I think um, what I'd rather do to wrap up is give anyone on the panel a final moment to um, comment or reflect or answer to or, or ask about anything we've touched the surface on today. I know that it's um, an ongoing conversation. It felt like for us at the Film Society that we couldn't not have this conversation, that it would be um, blind of us not to try to engage around some of what we feel is being talked about a lot right now and should be talked about even more. Um, I wonder if anybody wants to uh, comment. Say, I'm, I'm encouraged, actually, because I think that we've had a lot of, we, we have had these panels, we've had these articles, and you, know, you feel like it's just a lot of talking heads, but I just read about the blacklist partnering um, with the Athena Festival on scripts. You know, they're, they're going to do a program where they're getting scripts by people of color and game changer. Like, there are things happening, and I, and I believe that it, it's going to make a positive difference. And it's going to be slow, and it's not going to be as fast as we all would hope. But I do think that there is something really, really positive happening. And I think Donna Langley kicks fucking ass, too. And we need to, like, make more copies of her. That's the last thing I'll say. <laughs> I read a great interview last night in, on IndieWire with, um, I'm not sure how you say her name, but I think it's Mia Taylor, who's one of the two stars of this really great indie called Tangerine. Did any of you see it? That came out this year. So really, really great movie with um, two trans actresses in it. And um, the interviewer asked her what she wanted to do next. And I thought she was going to say something very <coughs> political and platformy and she said I want to make a horror movie I just want to run and scream and die like all the other dumb bitches and I, I, I love that because it just reminded me that like everybody's diversity struggle is different Every, everybody is running their own race at the same time as they're trying to fight for the cause and that's that's all I got I you know I want to add something about um, the thematic content of of movies that we all might make. Um, you know, you may, you may have realized that when the Supreme Court legalized gay marriage that there were cover stories on just about every publication where the media and the film business and television business were all self-congratulatory, talking about how they, they made the difference. They were the ones who, like, you know, set the stage for, for all of this to happen. And, you know, there's a little bit of truth to that. I mean, I don't think that they deserve as much credit as they were taking, but I do believe that, that you know, media, culture, movies, television actually do um, put things out there that help to change the general atmosphere. And I do think that this kind of boorish, male-dominated thing is more than just the personalities behind the scenes. The way that things are portrayed in these movies I, I had a big conversation with my daughter the other night about the fact that, um, and by the way, we, we mainly agreed, although she was being more tolerant than I was, um, but about this series of movies that were constantly being fed, even at film festivals like this, where somehow boorish, awful behavior is justified simply because somebody did something that was really genius. Um, and. 
and I just, um, uh, you know, I'm not going to name names, but, uh, <laughs> but, but I, I just feel like there's an aspect of, of what we're talking about that is deeper in the culture than just simply what is being done in Hollywood or even in independent film or in television or anything else, that we could actually make a difference in a different kind of way by making movies that make the point. Mm. Mm. I agree. I think we're putting things into a time capsule, so we better choose wisely. Mm. And thank you guys for coming out and being part of this. And, and I know at times pulling off a Band-Aid and looking at a scab isn't exactly like, you know, and sticking your finger in a wound isn't the most fun thing. But it's, it's real and it's there. And I do believe, like, I know the audiences are there because I know I'm one of eight and I have the most amazing brothers and sisters who are married to very diverse people, if you want to use that term. And, and I know what they want to see and I know it's not being made. And these are also very savvy, very intelligent people. So just the more intelligence is put out there, the better for all of us, you know, behind and in front of the scenes. I want to thank everybody for joining us today. And I want to thank Mark, Effie, Susan, Manette, Ira, Rose, and Lydia for spending time with us. Thank you very much. Thank you, guys. Thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>